Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to episode 120 of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, where we're going to talk about whether or not it is better to buy or rent your primary residence. Wow, this has been a long time coming. We get asked this question so much. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for tuning in today, everybody. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a real estate investor, mortgage agent, and lucky enough to be co-host of this podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker and an investor as well. And uh, I guess before we get started, maybe let's just do some quick housekeeping. Yeah, for sure. So we've got a few things to go over. The first one is the course, which we've mentioned on the last few episodes. Uh, it's filling up quite quickly. Uh, we haven't really done any advertising or any promotion for outside of mentioning it on the show here. Uh, I think we're going to try to push it a little bit on on IG and maybe some other socials just so more people get to see it. A few more spots, so so sign up if you can. Um, the next piece on, on here is just the newsletter, which we've got going on. That is going to be launched uh, in the next few weeks, I think, Dan. Um, that is our... Uh, partnership with Patter. So stay tuned for that. That'll be a great resource for everybody. And we've also got merch, uh, realestatemerch.ca, Evergrande hats, live, laugh, leverage pillows, and some <laughs> Christmas gifts coming soon as well. What are those? Merry Tiffmas from our buddy Tiff. That's going to be a Christmas sweater. Yeah. Uh, the next Christmas sweater, the famous ones from last year for lease. Navi Dad. And then Dan, you're not working on a little something special here. This is gonna be sweet. I'm excited for it. A children's book. Yeah, that's right. You heard it. A kid's book. Really simple stuff. A is for asset. And this is so you can teach your kids investing so that by the time they're twelve and thirteen years old, they'll be real estate moguls already. Yeah, and it's just always it's a it's a highly giftable item, children's books, right? So we figured it would sell well. Next on the list we've got meetups and then we'll get right to the episode. So Really impressive turnout from the meetups. I mean, we're really excited about the community we're building here. We have nine groups, 833 members coast to coast. I'm going to go through quickly. So the next meetups are September 12th, around 6 to 8 p.m. local time. But you'll have to check on realestatemeetups.ca to see when they are. I'm going to quickly go through the list. And if you don't see your city, just give us a shout and we're happy to help you set one up there. Vancouver, hosted by the le- legendary Steve Saretsky at August Brewing. Calgary, Cash and Homes and Calvert Mick are hosting at Cashin's office. Uh, actually, no, sorry. It's at uh, it's at Greta, which is right beside or below um, Cashin's office. Edmonton is um, Demir and Sean, who are hosting at Canadian Brewhouse. Kitchener-Waterloo, uh, Zach DeJong. I think we're waiting on a, a location there, but we'll just keep you posted. Toronto, your one and only Nick Hill is wow. hosting at uh, local Liberty Village. Barry, Ontario, also a uh, contributor on the podcast. Patrick Cassette will be hosting Barry's meetup at... There's a Canadian brew house in Barry, actually, which I didn't know about. So there's... Some, that one's, I think, got the highest uh, number of RSVPs so far. So people are really excited to go and meet Patrick. Uh, maybe we'll see one in Moncton. Got to talk to Cameron about that. And uh, maybe St. John. I got to talk to Nevin about that one as well. So um, hit us up. I know we've had people uh, talk to us about starting one of these in... London, Ontario. We've got in Saskatoon. Saskatoon's coming. China. Yeah, so we have an we'll Edmonton see. one already. But um, there's guys, there's there's stuff across the country. So if you see someone on here and you want to be a part of it, go reach out, join up. And if you don't see your location on there, maybe you're the person to start it. Yeah, and I think originally we went in a little hard with like trying to do more formal events. But what we realized was people really like just having these like kind of chill socials at um, you know bars, restaurants, cafes, whatever. And so. 
for the next probably six months, um, we're going to be focused on just literally the meetups. If you're an organizer, you want to meet, you want to organize a meetup. It's just posting it on meetup.com and uh, showing up at the bar and, you know, making sure you get a reservation and, and pick a location where 30 people can kind of network and mingle in a, you know, comfortable fashion. And uh, that that's pretty much all there is to it probably for the next six months. And then we'll, I think, start rolling out more formal panel events, paid events, et cetera. So anyway, without further ado, what's today's topic? Yeah, we have got a good one today, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Whether it's better to buy or rent a house depends on a variety of factors, including your personal circumstances, your financial situation, and of course, your long-term goals. So again, the topic of today's show is buy versus rent. So here are some considerations to help you make an informed decision. Dan, start it off. Start us off with the advantages of buying. Yeah. So the advantages of buying, and I'm gonna I'll go through the disadvantages as well. Equity building would be the primary advantage when you buy a house. You build equity over time as you pay down your mortgage. This can be a form of forced savings, which a lot of Canadians need. We're not exceptionally good at saving money. And uh, and it would lead to increased net worth, as we've seen a lot of people build wealth through the real estate asset over the past, uh, I don't know, 100, 200, 500 years, <laughs> thousands of years. <laughs> Pretty much forever. Um, stability and control. So homeownership provides stability and a sense of control over your living space. Uh, this can be a pro or a con, to be honest with you, but you can you can personalize the space. You make modifications and decorate as you please. Um, number three is the potential for appreciation. In many cases, uh, real estate can appreciate over time, potentially leading to a financial gain if you decide to sell in the future. Disadvantages, uh, you have to own a house. Most people, well, I'd say fewer and fewer people are really cut out for that task, especially mm-hmm. as the housing stock starts to depreciate and deteriorate. It's not that easy of a thing to do. And uh, and it's becoming expensive because I think we're becoming less and less handy people. We've, we've talked about this as a generation's... Yeah. And know. it's not even to rag on millennials for not being handy. It's like, this is Smithian economics, right? Adam Smith, uh, Wealth of Nations, talks about this thing called specialization and division of labor. And now... We're becoming increasingly specialized, so we are, you know, uh, white collar or whatever it is. It's more and, important to know how to make an Instagram reel than it is to, you know, install a, a door, some door hardware at this point. Yeah, and and then the skilled trades are increasingly specialized, so they're very expensive, and you get somebody to come in and f- fix something, and it costs you a lot of money. And so you have to decide whether or not you're cut out for homeownership, long term maintenance items, and depreciation. Again, housing is exceptionally expensive in this country, and. Um, it becomes more and more costly as bigger things go wrong. Market volatility, you could end up being house poor. It's expensive. Interest rates are exceptionally high right now. And you are locked in by a mortgage term or the liquidity of that house. So it's less mobile or agile compared to renting. Yeah, well said, Dan. So again, those are the advantages and disadvantages of buying a piece of property. Now, let's talk about the advantages of renting. Renting gives you that flexibility. Renters offer more flexibility to move around without the responsibilities of actually having to sell that property. You have much lower upfront costs. Renting generally requires lower upfront costs, such as a security deposit, You know your first and last month's rent, maybe some furniture. So even if you're moving into a brand new spot, it's likely going to cost you a lot less compared to a down payment and closing costs that are associated with buying a actual home. There's also less financial risk. Homeownership comes with additional costs like property taxes, maintenance, potential fluctuations in that property value, and renting can provide more financial predictability. But what are the disadvantages of renting? Well, you could get evicted. 
you could miss out on a huge bull run. Um, and you don't really get to personalize your space as much. Yeah, sure, you can paint the walls, but you're not, you know, adding in any built-ins or, or you know, putting an addition on or likely changing the floor or anything. Yeah, and then I guess you you also could potentially miss out on, like, you know, some of those those other advantages or slight upsides or the equity pay down, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a difference in cost uh, on the monthly basis that we're going to cover. And we, we've spoken about this, like when we're talking about condo investors, how the majority of condo investors are losing money, not losing money, but cash flow negative, let's say. You know, you can rent a condo for far less than the cost of owning that same condo. And so the the difference, the delta between those two, if you reinvested that well, you could potentially make it more compelling to rent than own financially. And so we're going to explore exactly what that looks like. My thesis is is that, you know, you have to be a really bad investor to make it more compelling to own a house than to rent a house. Um, but most people are really bad investors. And so that's why <laughs> we are where we are. So factors to consider when deciding whether or not you want to buy or rent. Um, number one is a financial situation. Can you afford the upfront costs of buying? Do you have stable income to cover mortgage payments, property taxes, insurance, and maintenance? What are your long-term plans? Do you know how long you're going to stay in the area? If you move frequently, if your job is very mobile, uh, if you plan on or if you value career mobility more than individual mobility, do you want to be close to family, friends? Do you need a village to help you raise a child, etc.? Um, renting might be more practical depending on, on your long-term plans. Um, market conditions. Are home prices rising or falling in your area? I mean, this is a big consideration now that we're sort of out of that capital appreciation environment and into a new credit cycle, right? Like we're at the beginning of a new credit cycle and this can affect the potential for appreciation. Maintenance and repairs. You're responsible for maintenance and repairs and it can be costly and time-consuming. So thinking about all of the things, especially with on an individualized basis on the asset that you're buying, market rent versus mortgage payments. So this is really just the, the purely quantitative side of it is what's the difference between the cost of renting and the potential mortgage payments to see which option is more affordable. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I just want to touch on that last one. All great points, but you know, market rent versus mortgage payment. A lot of the pain that we're seeing right now and that we will see over the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months is going to be from those mortgage payments. Now, again, rent is, you know, astronomically high across the country, hitting new records. And of course, the, you know, the primary markets of Toronto, Vancouver, et cetera. But mortgage payments are, are very different than rent. Yes, rent can go up and we've covered that in other episodes. We actually just covered that in our most recent episode, how much you're allowed to go up in rent on a province by province basis. But mortgage payments are, are way more volatile, especially in a rising rate environment. So, you know, if you're paying 2% and all of a sudden you renew at five and a half or six, there's going to be some serious sticker shock. You're not going to have that with renting unless, of course, you are for some reason evicted or moved from a very stable renting situation to a much more volatile, high priced one. Let's talk about some personal preferences when it comes to buying versus renting. Now, The first one here, and this is, I think, a very, very important one in this discussion is emotional satisfaction, right? We we track things like consumer sentiment, which essentially is consumer emotions on this podcast a lot. And it's not just us that track it. It's the Bank of Canada and other government agencies that look at consumer sentiment as, you know, a major market indicator. Now, emotional satisfaction is directly tied to that. So consider your emotional attachment to owning a home versus the flexibility of renting. You know, I'd like to talk about the difference between a house versus a home, 
right? A house, in my opinion, would be um, just talking about an asset, right? They, in some of the ways that we talk about our investment properties, this house, this numbered property, whatever, there doesn't seem to be as much of an emotional attachment to that place because I look at, at it as a business, as an investment. However, a home, and Dan, you know this, you, we just helped sell my parents' um, home that they lived in for decades. It was a childhood home for not really myself, but for some of my, my younger brothers. That was a much more emotional decision. So I think emotion plays a huge part in buying versus renting. Another thing to consider is lifestyle. Does home ownership align with your lifestyle and long-term goals? And that is across an array of things from emotions to finances to, again, uh, mobility, security, um, other family members possibly coming to live with you. How much space do you need? You know, this is a very subjective question that that is hard to put a blanket statement on because each person's lifestyle is going to be different and it's not going to be static. Those lifestyles are going to change. And the third thing to remember uh, with your personal preferences is investment goals. Do you see the property as an investment or simply a place to live? Very, very big distinction. If you see the property as an investment, uh, in most cases, and if it's a primary residence, in most cases, you're wrong. If you see it just as a place to live and you're okay with that and you've got other investments outside of that property, great. That that's likely the way to do it. Anyways, Dan, why don't we get into a bit of the analysis going back and forth here? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think uh, Robert Kiyosaki covers this well in like the rich dad, poor dad stuff. And regardless of whether or not you really prescribe to to their philosophy on on things, you know, he he sees the primary residence as a liability, and, and it very much is right. Like you, you, it doesn't necessarily make you money on a yielding basis. It's it's a cost that you have to and and rent would be the same thing. Like either way, it's a cost. Actually, when I interviewed Stephen Polos for Better Dwelling, he he mentioned this. He's like, your house is an investment because it pays you rent, right? And so either either you buy a, a house and it you rent it to somebody and that pays you rent, or it's rent that you don't otherwise have to pay. So the, whatever the difference is between that rent that you would have had to pay and the cost of your house is kind of that economic loss and what you can do with that opportunity cost. We're going to introduce the idea of an opportunity cost in a bit, sunk cost versus opportunity cost. But what you do with that can really change the way that this decision-making process plays out for you. And that would depend on a variety of factors, like what you see, how, how much you see the market appreciating by, what interest rate you're getting at, what rate of return you could otherwise get on that cash if you put it in cash flowing multiplexes in fringe markets in other places in Canada, which we're seeing a lot of people doing. I literally have a, a client who just liquidated a, a very expensive primary residence, putting all of their investment into smaller cash flowing properties. Love to see it. Love to see it. And I've had a lot of people approach me for the same thing, right? Because the primary residence market is being impacted, but we're seeing rents escalate elsewhere uh, as you know, kind of like a component of inflation, like we're, we just covered in the most recent episode. Anyway, it's important to conduct this thorough analysis if you're really trying to weigh the difference in the in the values, especially because there are big differences and, and rents are moving up. Rents have been very volatile. Prices have been very volatile. There's no one size fits all answer. So we're going to try and kind of explore the entire thing so you can make a decision. So the easiest way to get an understanding of this is by looking at sunk costs and opportunity costs and what kind of return you could earn on those in another investment. So let's start with sunk costs here. Now, sunk costs are expenses that would have been incurred and cannot be recovered regardless of the decision you make. When comparing the sunk costs of homeownership versus renting, it's important to consider the specific costs associated with each option. So here is a breakdown. 
the sunk costs of home ownership. Well, the first one would be the down payment, the initial payment made towards a purchase of a property, typically a percentage of that property between five and, and 20, likely. Not It's not technically a sunk cost. This is tied up, but the opportunity cost is a sunk cost. So an opportunity cost refers to the potential benefits or returns that are foregone when a decision is made to pursue one option over another. So any interest that you could have earned on your down payment would be a sunk cost. That's money that you lost, right? Or an opportunity cost. That, that's money that you, you never got, right? Yeah. It's the value of the next best alternative that you give up when you make a choice. So if you choose to put that $200,000, which is I think what we're going to use here on a million dollar house, 20% down, you know, the that plus all of the equity that you're paying in on a monthly basis, plus closing costs, land transfer tax, taxes, et cetera, all of that money could have been going into a Bitcoin or, you know, Dogecoin or, you know, <laughs> like whatever, Mars, any, whatever anything, yeah, right? Anything, yeah, could have been yeah. going into an S&P uh, index ETF at 12% per year over the past decade. And that's the opportunity cost. So now let's talk about closing costs, which are fees associated with the purchase of a home, including loan, origination fees, title insurance, appraisals, and more. Then, of course, we got many more on this list, and these are all going to be part of the sunk costs of home ownership. So closing costs. Home repairs and maintenance, and that's cost for ongoing repairs and maintenance and upgrades. And again, of course, those are the responsibility of the homeowner. We've got property taxes, and those are, of course, your taxes paid to local governments based on the assessed value of your property. If you live in a condo, you've got condo fees, you've got home insurance, mortgage interest, of course, utilities and other monthly costs. Those are all part of the opportunity costs, which again is the potential return on investment that could have been earned from investing the down payment and all of these other things, all these other funds elsewhere. All right. So let's get into the math of it. Maybe let's say all in, actually, I'm going to quickly go. So wowa.ca, W-O-W-A.ca has a good uh, rent versus buy calculator. I'm not necessarily sure I agree with its accuracy and the calculations that they're using, but um, it allows you to put in like your monthly rent, uh, purchase price, down payment percentage, interest rate, amortization period, and the property value growth. And it'll kind of give you some comparisons. Great website. Yeah. It's a good website. They have a lot of great tools. Anyway, so let's just say all in on a $1 million home, we're putting out $200,000 for a down payment, which still belongs to you. So maybe we should just calculate the lost return on that. So if you could make a 5% per year return on that, that would be putting it probably in the safest thing possible, like a GIC right now. So your risk-free rate is 5%. That would be $10,000 a year in lost returns. $2,000 a month for interest is $24,000 per year. $500 per month for maintenance is $6,000 per year. $400 a month for taxes, 4800 bucks a year. I'd say $500 a month for utilities, but we can scratch that because you'd pay that as a tenant too. So the annual cost of ownership is about $45,000 per year for a million dollar house. And then maybe another 20 to 30K one-time sunk costs on acquisition, like land transfer tax, et cetera. But we can even leave that out. And then let's say that that property goes up in value 5 to 6% per year. I think the historic average is is between 5 and 6% per year, depending on when you start the thing. If you start it earlier, it could be you know between 4 and 5%. Even if you say 4 to 6%. So you get, let's say, 50K back in capital appreciation per year, which is substantial. But without that capital appreciation, it's not worth it at all, right? So now go through the cost of renting so we can compare them a little bit here. Yeah. So let's go through these one-to-one. 
So some cost of renting. So you have to put in a security deposit or a key deposit, um, typically required at the start of the lease. It's often refundable at the end of the lease term, but it, you know, you're not earning interest on that. Usually a couple hundred bucks, nothing yeah. too substantial. Yeah. Do you want to hit me with the next one? First and last month's rent. Now, again, many landlords require this. We've even seen crazy things like yeah. full year up front. Again, do not recommend asking or paying that. But uh, first and last is pretty standard. Again, not a massive deployment to capital, but you know, if your rent's three thousand bucks, six thousand dollars is is a good chunk of change. For sure. Um, the next would be application fees, but this is nominal, but like paying for your Equifax, um yeah, non refundable fees for yeah. processing rental applications. Renters insurance. So again, that's usually a, a small monthly charge that can usually be attached to even like a credit card and stuff. So again, fairly nominal. Uh, utility deposits. So um, some rental agreements require deposit for utility services. Um, some utility companies do this as well. Like I remember in Newmarket, I had to pay a six hundred dollar um, utility deposit. Uh, yeah, if or, I didn't, if I didn't want them to pull my credit, or even if you if you start a new utility somewhere, there's yeah. there can be a startup cost for that. Uh, another one is a broker fee. If you use a real estate agent to find that rental property, you may need to pay them. Usually, the owner of that property will will be paying that part. But but who knows that that could cost you a couple bucks for sure. And then the potential return on investment that could have been earned from investing that money that went into security deposits and other upfront costs. So. It's important to note that while some costs associated with homeownership um, have the potential to be recovered, they're all um, still often considered sunk costs because they've already been incurred and cannot easily be liquidated. Um, and so you would kind of have to consider them in getting them back in your equity outcome scenario. So let's just like discuss sort of what it would look like to compare these two. Yeah, I love it. So when comparing homeownership and renting, consider both the immediate upfront costs and the ongoing expenses associated with each option. Additionally, let's take into account your personal financial situation, of course, your long-term goals, your lifestyle preferences, um, and these will all help you make the most informed decision. So let's estimate the difference in sunk costs between buying a $1 million home with a 5% interest rate and renting a home for $3,000 per month over a specific period of time. And let's assume for this calculation and example, that time frame is five years. Yeah. So if you're buying a $100,000 home, let's say your down payment is 20%. So $200,000 is an opportunity cost, not a sunk cost. You get this back. Um, what would the closing cost be on that? Closing costs simply range from 2 to 5% of the home's value. Let's use 3%. Uh, so for this calculation, that would be $30,000. Okay. Um, and at a 5% interest rate over five years, total interest paid on, on it would be approximately $244,000, which is crazy when you think yeah, about that wow. over a five-year mortgage term. And let's assume you could make a 6% return on that money in an ETF or whatever. Um, so like 50000 a year plus 6% is 53000 Plus compounding, I'm not. I'm not going to get too messy with the math, but you know, like fifty three thousand in year one, fifty six thousand in year two, uh, that ends up being one hundred and fifteen thousand after year two, and then you add in year three, which is fifty six. You know, anyway, all that multiplied by one point zero six percent, it ends up being closer to like three hundred thousand dollars that that would have become after five years. So the sunk cost of interest, if you were, if it was making you just five percent, uh, which I think this comes back to, can you make 5%? Some people can't. Most people can't. Like, because they're, they're out trying to trade Dogecoin and stuff rather than putting it in an, in an ETF, which we'll get to. But S&P ETF made like 12%. Everyone's out trying to like beat the market. And Everybody like wants to get rich quick. Yeah, That's it. Right? Nobody wants to get rich slow. You can get rich 
Not quick, right? No, super slow. <laughs> um, okay, uh, property, taxes, insurance, and maintenance. These costs can vary greatly depending on, of course, property type, location. But let's estimate an additional $1,000 per month for those combined costs, totaling 60000 over that five-year period Dan was just talking about. So your total costs, down payment, closing costs, interest, additional costs, not even including the... Um, compounding of potential interest that you could have learned or earned on all of those sunk costs um, over the five-year period is uh, $534,000, let's say. Pull out the 200 k down payment since it's not a sunk cost and just put the opportunity cost of the ROI on it, which is, let's say, fifty k over five years. Uh, it would make the total cost something like $400,000. I'm really rounding numbers here to make it easy for you to understand in... Uh, Spoken word. <laughs> yeah, we know you're listening to this. We don't. This is not a math. Podcast. There are there are much more specific <laughs> numbers, and I do know how to do math. Um. <laughs> okay, Dan, let's talk about renting a home now. Yeah, so I figure you could rent. And this might have changed, maybe not. Honestly, like I think your like your average one million dollar condo in Toronto would rent for probably three grand, right? Uh, minimum, right? Yeah. So like, so let's just assume that that same house rented in the in the suburbs or in Toronto for three thousand dollars. So you have monthly rent of three thousand dollars. Total rent paid over five years is what? $3,000 times 12, five years, you're paying $180,000 in rent over that time period. And if you'd make 50K per year on the 200,000 investment, so add in 50K, and that's before considering adding in all the ROI, return on investment, you could be making on the principal payments as well. So the difference in sunk costs, so the buying sunk costs, versus minus renting some costs is about $220,000. So $400,000 minus $180,000. So just to be very clear, the buying sunk cost is $400,000. The renting sunk cost is $180,000. Because that's just you're just paying rent. Mm-hmm. And, and I've, I've stripped out all of the return on it because we'll get to that a little bit later. But because even the, the WAWA calculator doesn't really... Ha- and that's the X factor on this. That's like really the deciding factor is what return could you earn outside of homeownership? That's the opportunity. So in the simplified calculation over a five-year period, the difference between sunk costs of buying a million-dollar home with a 5% interest rate, which is low right now, and uh, I think 25-year amortization and renting a home for $3,000 per month. And again, that, that changing that $3,000 number, if rent's four, or $4,000, that's an extra, whatever it is, $60,000 over the, the added to the rental cost, right, over a five-year period. And this calculation is not take into account potential property appreciation or the opportunity cost of investing in the down payment or investing the down payment elsewhere. So that's just literally just an analysis of sunk costs side by side. So keep in mind that real estate costs can vary widely based on factors such as, again, location, interest rates, property appreciation, and of course, your personal circumstances. So it's advisable to consult again with some real estate professionals and real estate experts and investors for a more accurate and tailored analysis based off of what you are trying to accomplish in your specific situation. Yeah. So I, I plugged that into um, the Wawa calculator as well, just to see what it gave me. And uh, they say buying is better with this scenario. And again, they don't have a rate of return. So like it's not available within that calculator. So I think it's missing a key component, but says buying is better if you stay in the house for 3.17 years or longer. Otherwise, renting is better. On a five-year comparison, the total cost if you buy, they're obviously not including down payment here, $154,625 versus $180,000, which is the same rental calculation that we had. Renting costs, 
$25,000, give or take more than buying at the end of year five, they say. So from a, the rate, the ROI or return on investment portion is really one of the deciding factors. It's not just a payment comparison. So basically your million dollar house needs to make you 220, from our, our math, your million dollar house needs to make you $220,000 to cover that difference over, over five years to outperform renting, which means that it would need to go up 22% in five years or just over 4% per year, which is actually around the rate at which- Kind of rate in line. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So now, I mean, this would obviously change if you were a good investor and could make better than 5% per year return, which again, unfortunately, most people can't. Well, they could if they were not like self-directed and, and you know, I mean, like the S&P returned 12.39% per year for the last 10 years, um, 98 Four eight percent when adjusted for inflation. So yeah, even even if you just put it into a market fund, you could make renting a better use of capital than buying, assuming the house goes up at only that that five percent or four between four and five percent. Yeah. So I mean, I guess this this kind of again begs the question: Why are Canadians so obsessed with home ownership? Yeah, I mean, from from my view, it's quite simple. Like you have to be, you have to look at home ownership for what it offers, and and the qualitative reasons that you mentioned, like you know, it being a home is great. But the reality is not a lot of Canadians get the privilege of buying a place that really feels like home to them, right? Because like we have a housing crisis and it's just, it's not a luxury that most Canadians can afford. We're not, most of us aren't getting our dream home and and most millennials may never own their dream home in their lifetime, right? Like that's, that's a reality that we have to accept as a country right now, which is is crazy, but that's where we're at. And so we have to think about the other things, the the quantitative, not the qualitative components that, that ownership um, offers. And that's for savings because we aren't very good at saving money in Canada. It, you know, our home ownership or sorry, our, our household savings rates are lower than, than most of our peers globally. Um, so that's number one. Uh, it creates a savings vehicle for Canadians. You, if you just pay your mortgage, you know, meet your financial obligations, then you um, you will accumulate a lot of capital. And and you know, now we're seeing an entire generation who bought in the early '90s during the last major housing correction, um, retire on the gains that they made from that, that's, you know, cyclical shift and the capital appreciation and accumulation savings that they did over that period of time. So it's just 30 years of saving at a rate of return, you know? Um, and then the other piece is, you know, that most people aren't good at investing. And so it gives them something that is consistent that we mentioned in the last episode that has can typically grow or slightly outperform the rate of inflation. Um, so it gives you a bit of a hedge against inflation and, um, and it'll, it'll appreciate in value and would outperform what you would otherwise do with your capital if you were a renter saving money, saving the difference between your rent and your mortgage payment and putting it into GICs or index funds or Dogecoin or whatever. <laughs> Really plugging the Dogecoin. Well, I, I just was trying to give a full scope of oh, like that's, the, that's the, the, ri- the, full least, the, the least risky <laughs> asset to the most risky <laughs> asset. Yeah. I mean, look, I, we're very analytical on the show. We we don't usually talk about our feelings too often on the show here, Dan. But this episode, almost more so than, than anything, maybe when we cover like the monetary policy report, we look at the consumer sentiment charts. That's still maybe the only other time we talk about how much emotion can actually play in real estate and you know i feel this this is really one of those conversations where if you're an investor you look at a property entirely different than you do 
if because we're really talking about buying a primary residence here, right? This isn't, hey, go out and buy, you know, get very emotionally involved in a duplex. Usually doesn't happen unless you're a bit more of an early on investor. You know, the investors that we know and we work with look at a deal, whatever happens with the deal, whether they get it, they negotiate it or it falls apart. Um, however, it starts and transpires and finishes. There's usually a lot less emotion. I mean, Dan, you and I have worked on certain deals for weeks or months only to watch them fall apart. And yeah, it sucks, right? It sucks in, you know, for the first couple of minutes, but it really, it really doesn't weigh on us. Whereas, you know, we've, we've seen more first time home buyers or people looking for the, that quote unquote dream home or something where they can picture their kids running around in the backyard or, you know, the additions or renovations that they want to do to a home. And they're thinking about that on, you know, the first time they're walking through it immediately emotion comes and plays a huge role in something like that. You know, again, we've all watched enough HDTV and spent enough time on Realtor.ca and, and Zolo and all the other websites, um, you know, looking at quote unquote house porn. I think it really plays Emotion really plays a uh, a powerful role in this where if you're looking for that home, again, that house versus home, if you're looking for a home, you're emotional. If you're looking for a house slash investment, you can take the emotions out. And I think that's why this gets very convoluted. Um, and, and again, I think it gets very misunderstood because we have watched a lot of people make a ton of money off of their houses over the last couple of decades. And for most people, when you make a ton of money off of something, that would be an investment, wouldn't it? But it's not really an investment because it's not making you money. It only makes you money when you sell it. And then you've got to re redeploy that capital for probably almost the same amount to get a similar product. So anyways, what are your, what are your thoughts on it, Dan? Yeah, I think that's like an exceptionally good point. And a lot of it comes down to planning in that respect. Um, I think like the it's crazy because Canadians sell their homes much more frequently than people in the US. Um, we like moving around, movers and shakers. Uh, well, I think a lot of it is cl- tri- people climbing that property ladder. Mm-hmm. And and when you talk about houses going up for an indefinite period of time, and we literally just covered this in our most recent episode, um, whether or not real estate is an inflation hedge, uh, 119, you know, do houses go up in value or does the value of a dollar go down? And I think the latter is probably more true than, than the former. And in Canada, people climb the property ladder and typically own 4.5 to 5.5 houses in their lifetime. Wow. That, that's from, yeah, actually Alyssa Davies did that research from from Zolo. Shout out Alyssa. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah she's great. Uh, a lot of the research that they do, the primary research, especially like surveys and stuff is just amazing. I can't believe that. They almost, almost, is that almost six houses a Canadian, each Canadian owns in their lifetime? Five. Almost so 4.5 yeah. to 5.5 yeah. houses in their lifetime. But then it's like, well, what's the... You know, assuming twenty-five to sixty-five, um, what's the the number of years? You know, and it's so it's less than ten years. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the U.S., it's like thirteen point two is the median years that somebody spends in their house, and it ranges depending on the urban area from six to like eighteen years. Yeah, I think that would about it would be geographic for sure because I think people in the city just are almost forced to move around as they again grow and families grow and finances grow. But I think it also has to do with the way that the states has their mortgage. And, and loan True. system set up, right? Where you can you can get those 10, 20, 30 year loans where in Canada, um, your you know, your mortgage term can prompt you to either stay or or go. Yeah, it is a good point because you know, one of the big themes in the US is that people are locked in their houses by these exceptionally compelling interest rates, um, which will probably help stimulate the economy, honestly, that people aren't 
you know, there's not a lot of economic waste from people just shuffling. It's going to suck for realtors, but people just <laughs> shuffling houses around. So they'll actually spend that difference in value, maybe renovate. Like I've talked to a lot of US homeowners recently and they're like, yeah, my house isn't perfect, you know, but the interest rate on it makes it way too compelling for me to ever sell it. So I'm just going to spend, you know, the 100K that I would have upsizing on adding a huge addition and making it the house that I want. That's yeah. good for the economy, right? You know, when you think about residential investment in Canada, 13% of our GDP, half of that is real estate commissions, half of that is renovation. Yeah. And and so that's a really good way to stimulate an economy. There were a couple other components, I think, that that we wanted to mention. The homeownership rate, I think you have pulled up here in Canada, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. About two in three Canadians live in an owner-occupied home. That was in 2022. Since 2017, the home ownership rate in Canada has fluctuated. In 2019, it peaked at approximately 68.6%. And then in 2022, uh, it dropped slightly down to 66.5%. So 66.5% Canadians own a home. Yeah. And, and so to like my answer to the question, and we'll wrap up here is, you know, pe- why is it, why do people love homeownership in Canada? I mean, when you, if you go follow financial advice from anybody ever that actually knows what they're talking about, they say, save money and put it into a compounding return asset, right? could be anything. House is that thing. Yeah. We like houses and real estate, but it could be anything. But so a house and, and most people, they, if they had just the cash, they wouldn't take that advice. They'd go ball out, buy a boat, whatever it is. Right. And so a house forces people to do, to take that financial advice. It forces you every month to make your mortgage payment, put savings into your account and put, or put savings into an asset that is making you money. And that, and people have seen so many other Canadians, so many fellow Canadians who have faithfully paid off their mortgages and seen long-term capital appreciation, slow and steady, following that get-rich-slow scheme, they're forced into it by the mortgage system in Canada and they've achieved financial success. They've accumulated wealth over their lifetime literally just because they were forced to follow the rules by a mortgage, by a house. And so if you're a good investor and you can outperform that and you can do way better, that's great. But most people aren't and most people should follow the Dave Ramsey advice of, you know, save money and put it in the, a low risk asset and wait for compounding interest. And real estate is an exceptionally good vehicle for you to do that. A primary residence is an exceptionally good vehicle for you to do that. So if you're the kind of person who's going to go and lever up and buy Dogecoin, if you have idle money sitting around, then maybe putting, say, maybe <laughs> buying a house is actually the better yeah. thing because it ties your hands to something that is lower risk. It's almost the golden handcuffs of saving yeah, uh, t- tied, tied to a hopefully wonderful family home, right? So, I mean, my, my final thoughts here is, again, super emotional decision. Probably the most emotional decision that we've ever spoken about on the show, you know, buying your primary residence. Is it an investment, in my opinion? No. Do we see a lot more people, um, you know, personal anecdote, I've been renting for years in, in both Vancouver and Toronto and Guelph all over the place. I have never owned a primary residence. However, I own dozens and dozens of properties, some with you, Dan, some with some of our other partners. Um, And I'm happy to continue buying investment properties before I buy a primary residence because I understand the finances are going to be, they're going to work so much more in my favor without having that anchor of a primary residence taking up so much of my existing capital, taking up my monthly expenses. Whereas if I can rent and have the mobility to move around and do my own thing, I can continue to put that money into investments, which make you money. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, we know from that Urbanation report as well, like you're in a condo, Centerize, you know, downtown Toronto, right? Centerize, I love that. Yeah. So (laughs) great location to own that. 
you would it would cost oh, you cost me an extra way more yeah it would cost yeah. you an extra 30 percent per month yeah. probably and that whole difference would just be interest yeah the owner of that property no offense to them sorry they should be listening to the show they're losing money on you <laughs> they are like they are relying on capital appreciation to make that investment compelling and urban nation's report shows that greater than 50 percent of new condo investors are cash flow negative and so rather than making the fine rather than putting out that extra thousand dollars or two thousand dollars on interest alone on a monthly basis you're putting that money into investments. Anyway, let's finish this off with a review. Yeah, let's finish it off all warm and fuzzy here. Uh, five stars, amazing podcast. This is from Billy MV23. Hey guys, your podcast is great. Your content you guys share helps me stay the course in my journey as a real estate investor. Using 1% of my time to understand the real estate market with your hundreds of shows is way better than using 100% of my time to do the same thing and potentially make costly mistakes. Thanks. Billy, we're here for you, brother. Uh, that's what we're trying to do, guys. We are trying to put out as much information as we can so you guys have it easier than we did. And you can listen to this and join our community and tune into the course and really learn the fundamentals of real estate. So again, thanks for that review. We appreciate all of them so much. They really do put smiles on our faces. Go rate the podcast five stars and write us a review. Thanks so much. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.